I don't know about you, but I, I absolutely love uh, the opportunity just to sing these songs of Advent, these songs of Christ. And I don't know if you paid notice or not, but there's just such rich theology uh, in, in many, many of these songs where we just see the miracle of God become flesh. And uh, I want to just thank uh, Bruce and the team for leading us in worship this morning. So thank you so much for that. We um, are going to take a a break for the next few weeks from our study in Ephesians. And uh, I think it's appropriate in the last few Sundays of 2015 to focus on uh, the advent of Jesus Christ and to look at the miracle, the miracle that we celebrate this time of year, that Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us, who humbled himself and came and walked among us, and then he died as a payment for our sins. So I just think, uh, what better way? to focus on a time where the world is trying to take it over with commercial things and, and money and economy and, and whatever. But we know, we have the answers. We know why we're celebrating, and that is because of our Savior, Christ the Lord. And so uh, that's what we'll be doing this, this morning and next week, and uh, we're looking forward just to a wonderful time of remembering Jesus Christ is the center of Christmas. And I love our banners every year. I, lo- I don't know. I, there's just something about it. Michael, I think sometimes we should get like banners for other times of the year. Cause like I walk in, my eyes caught to that, you know, and it's like, Hey, I like this. I like this theme. Christ Christmas begins with Christ, our savior. And so, uh, it does. And so let's not get caught letting other things fill it in. Let's pray this morning. And then we'll, uh, We'll open God's word. And I am looking at the clock. I got a ton of time, so I hope you guys buckle your seatbelts. I'll take it. No, I'm just... Gracious Father, Lord, we just thank you for uh, the time of worship we had this morning. Lord, thank you for, for those who, through the years, you have gifted to put pen to paper and write of your advent and write of your coming to us, to save us from our sins, to declare that you are the Lord and that your name is the only name that is worthy to be praised forever. Lord, I thank you that you came to save us. And so, Father, this morning as we look into your word, Father, may we just be excited. Lord, may we be encouraged at the blessing of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and he is our Savior May he be exalted this morning in our time of looking in your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today is going to be various scriptures. I would recommend you have your Bible ready. We'll be turning to different places uh, as, we, as we go through and, and preach this morning. Um, but I, I wanted to start off with a, with a question. And it's a question about questions. And the question is this. How many of you are in the habit of asking rhetorical questions? You know, a rhetorical question, for those that want to review, is a question that is asked without expecting an answer. It can be a question that really doesn't even have an answer. It might be a question that has an obvious answer, but you only ask the question to make a point. These questions are usually asked for that purpose, to make a point or to persuade or to make emphasis on the point that you're trying to make. Or sometimes in writing, it's used for literary effect. A few examples of a rhetorical question. You guys ready? This should be kind of fun. It's Christmas time. I like fun. I'm a fun guy, I think. <laughs> My kids will argue with you probably on that, but they're wrong. <laughs> few questions. Who knew? Sure, why not? Does it look like I care? (laughs) Are you kidding me? A favorite one of uh, my 10-year-old? I know, right? (laughs) I did a uh, field trip uh, to the Monterey Bay Aquarium on Wednesday, and uh, I think it's not just my 10-year-old who is fond of that rhetorical question. I know, right? Hey, aren't those fish cool? I know, right? I'm like, okay, yeah, we got it. <laughs> Is the Pope Catholic? <laughs> Do birds fly? What's up with that? <laughs> this one goes back a ways. Maybe some of us will remember it. 
aren't you glad you used dial? <laughs> Don't you wish everybody did? This goes back even a little bit further. How many roads must a man walk down before you can call him a man? Eight! I'm joking. To be or not to be, that is the question. See, sometimes questions are asked and we know the answer. And we just had a bit of fun asking some silly questions. But there are rhetorical questions that are listed throughout Scripture that to one who knows Jesus Christ, to the one who, by God's grace, has eyes that have been enlightened and hearts and minds that have been opened and brought from death to life, these questions in the scriptures have obvious answers. Yet, when you ask these questions to someone who is darkened in their understanding, as the scriptures say, or still dead in their sins, they answer wrong. But to the believer, they're obvious. And when they answer wrong, it's heartbreaking. And we see when people answer these questions wrong, those who are lost, they truly are walking in darkness. As it states in Romans 3, that they are without understanding. Add to that a bigger problem, that man is rebellious and against God. And in their denial of God and his words, they're often blasphemous and idolatrous with their words and actions to the questions that Scripture asks. So what are some of the questions that are asked in Scripture? In Mark 4, 35 through 41, do you remember? Jesus is asleep on the boat, and a storm comes up. And the wind and the waves and the water is coming in, and the disciples go, we're going to die. We are going to die. They were very, very afraid. And what does Jesus do? They wake him up. They say, don't you see we're going to die? And Jesus says, fear not. What are you worried about? And then he says, peace, be still. And he calms the seas. And what did the disciples ask? Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Psalm 18, verse 31. For who is God but the Lord? Do we need to answer that? There is no other God but the Lord, Jehovah, the Lord, Yahweh. And who is a rock except our God? Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Ask that to someone in the world who the Lord is not their light and their salvation. And what answer will you get? Whom shall I fear? And you will get a list it is a fearful place if you walk in this world without our Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, I would say we will fear terrorism. We will fear the unknown. We will fear the dangers that are in our society. But the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And when that's written, there's an answer. No one. In Job... God asks a lot of questions of Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurements or stretched the line upon it? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have seen the storehouses of the hail which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of war and battle? Can you send out lightning and tell it where to go? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Matthew 12, 22, I want to read an account here. And by the way, like I said, we're going through various passages. We're not going to really tackle 
super deep any one that we're in today, but I hope, again, to accomplish and answer a big question today. And the question is, what child is this? What we just saying, we want to look at our Messiah. We want to look at our Savior and who he is and make sure we have the right answer and that we're not fooling ourselves. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? Can this be the Messiah? Can this be the promised one? That's the question they ask. Now when you see a miracle like that, what do you think, especially for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, what is the obvious answer? Yes. Yes. This is the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Satan or Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. We have an excellent question being asked by the people. Can this be who we've waited for? And yet the religious leaders at the time said, no, he did that by the power of Satan. Is there anything more blasphemous or more opposite of the truth? You see, those without understanding will take what's pure and right and holy and good and they twist it and they say, oh no, that's the opposite of that. He did that by the power of the devil. And as you go on, Jesus says this, knowing their thoughts. Now this probably should have made them very fearful. Instead, it hardened their rebellious hearts. But knowing their thoughts, they could not fool Jesus Christ. Jesus says this, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they, therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. By the way, Jesus has plundered the house and we are his treasure. We are the rescued ones. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age in this age, or in the age to come. Now, Jesus said earlier, I cast out the demons uh, by the Spirit of God. And the Pharisees were saying, you did that by the power of Satan. They committed blasphemy. They committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Do you see how pivotal it is when we look at Jesus Christ and we ask, what child is this? That we know the answer. That we know who Jesus is. What one, one would say quickly, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. The Pharisees quickly answered wrong. You see, as God's children, we read rhetorical questions about God, and our answers are framed in awe and worship. What child is this? This, this is Christ the King. Haste, hurry up, and bring him praise, for he is God. And so our answers are framed in worship, reverence, and respect. Our answers, when we ask who is Jesus, are words of praise. Think of the songs we sing year-round, indescribable. Who imagines the sun and gives source to its light? Who has told every lightning bolt where it should go? What about these questions that we sing? And we know the answers, and we sing them with loud joy. 
Think of the Father's love, the first verse. How has the sinner been forgiven? We're all answering that in our hearts, aren't we? Oh, through Jesus. The Father sent Jesus. How has the rebel been made clean? Or blinded eyes been made to see? How have the orphans been adopted? Who hated your love and ran from grace, despised and rejected all your ways? We sing the answer. How wonderful the Father's love. And I love this church. You sing it. We raise our voices and we proclaim loudly, God loves us. And it is through him we have salvation. See, we answer in awestruck worship. We proclaim and we inwardly yell, how were we saved? Who saved us? Why? And it's wonderful. Sally, and what I hope brings horror to us is the world answers this way, no one brings hope. That's really what they're saying, that there is no hope. How have you been forgiven? Well, uh, I, uh, I'm trying to be better than, than, uh, than my daughter, Kelsey. And that's hard to do. I love Kelsey. She does a good job. I'm not supposed to do this with my kids, but I do that. I saw her. Now she's mad at me. And I'll have to ask forgiveness. Right? How have you been? If, go to the man on the street. Are you forgiven? Forgiven from what? Huh? Did I do something wrong to you? No. How are you forgiven before God? I don't know. Without hope. Wrong answers. We have the answers in Jesus Christ. So what does this have to do with Advent? What does this have to do with Christmas time that we find ourselves in each year? Well, we asked, what child is this? And you know, if we asked, if our children were here right now, say, hey, kids, come back over uh, from Sunday school. And we said, hey, we're going to ask you a question. What child is this who laid the rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? What do you think our kids, they'd be like, oh, Jesus, hello. <laughs> like, uh, duh, we know that answer, right? That's what they would do. They would say, Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Christ. But today I want to look at that again. What child is this? I want to look at Jesus. You know, sometimes I was reading in uh, some blogs and such this week and clicking Twitter links and, and uh, there were some, you know, tips for, te- you know, preaching during Christmas time. And I was encouraged by one of them. And it was this, it's like, stop looking for like the hidden, the hidden gem. You know, the Christmas story has been told, what, for years, 2000 years. Like, you know, let's not try to guess the time of year. Let's not try to guess how many wise men there were, even though there were only three gifts. And, there, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, this is just a wonderful time that Christ came. But they said, focus on Christ. Focus on Christ during this season. So we sang answers, and they're good biblical answers. But what child is this? Jesus is our king. He's our redemption. He's our forgiveness of sins. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1. Who is this child? By the way, when you ask the question, what child is this? You know there's infinite answers, right? You know that I'll hit probably about three. And feel free to send emails uh, that say you missed this one because I will miss many. I just want to let you know that. This is not an exhaustive uh, message this morning. We're going to hit every single thing. But Colossians 1, this really sums up who Jesus is. This is the really, really big answer to what child is this. Colossians 1.15. He, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We see God through Jesus Christ. He is the picture, he is the image of God, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the creator. 
all things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created for Jesus Christ. And he is before all things. He's first. He is the greatest. He is all there is. In him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Sound like a Christmas hymn? Jesus, our Emmanuel, would be the next line. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Does this sound familiar to what we've just been studying the last two weeks in Ephesians? Jesus, our peace. He is the image of the invisible God. So you see there, that right there, what we just read, is a very, very big answer to this question. And how do we ever really get to the depths of our Savior? Our eternal Savior. But again, sadly today, some of you are going to answer this question wrong. I am confident and saddened that there are some in here today who you refuse in your understanding, you refuse to truly answer who Jesus is. In fact, I would bet you avoid the question. Don't avoid the question. Consider who is Jesus because he is God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the best. He is first. And he is our peace with God. Your sin has separated you from God. Jesus died on the cross. And by his blood, you can have peace with God. So do not avoid the question today, please. This child in a manger is your creator. Please consider this. He is your king. Whether you bow to him or not, you will one day. He's the eternal God become man. He is your savior. He died on the cross for you and me. He died for our sins, yet he was perfect. You see, the scriptures prove and tell us who Christ is. Yet man, in rebellion, states the exact opposite. Man answers back, Jesus is no big deal. Jesus was just a man. Maybe Jesus was a myth. They don't even say it with authority. And you know the foolishness when you turn on PBS or Discovery Channel, who we're going to talk, who is Jesus? Well, the Jesus myth. That's ignorance. That's ignorance. I mean, that's foolishness. Not to get into apologetics 101, but uh, there are not very many educated people, whether they embrace Christianity or not, who are foolish enough, foolish enough to say that Jesus did not exist. And he did, and Jesus made claims, and he said he's God, so you need to deal with that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And as C.S. Lewis said, he was either crazy for saying that, or a liar, or he was telling the truth. Well, he proved he was telling the truth because he died on the cross and God raised him from the dead and he appeared to many. So don't get stuck in the foolishness of those who try to avoid who Jesus is. He's folklore. He's just like King Arthur. We just don't know. Ridiculous. He's just a prophet, like so many others. We can never exhaust the answers to this question, who, what child is this? But I have three. We just answered the first answer of the infinite answers that there are was just answered in Colossians. He is the image of God. Jesus is God. In John 1, it says that he is God who became flesh and dwelt among us. I love 1 John. You know, so sometimes when you read like the first verses of a book, they're introductions and they're kind of easy to kind of go, oh yeah, let's get to the meat and the potatoes. Let's get to the meal here. Let's see what John has to say in 1 John. 
But in 1 John, it says this, John, 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning. I love that language. What does that make you think of? That which was from the beginning. Anyone feel like yelling it out today? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John, in the beginning was John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was what? Was God. First John 1. That which was from the beginning. He's pointing, he's saying, I'm going to tell you about God. And he says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made visible or appeared before us, was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too, that you and me, may have fellowship with, with, uh, with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Think of John. He goes, I want to tell you about Jesus. And oh, he'll get into it big in First John, and he gets into it really big in the Gospel of John. But he says, we heard him with our ears. We held him. Can you imagine, when they gave Jesus a hug, they were hugging God Almighty. Fully God, fully man. And our hands handled. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but Jesus is fully man. And I know when I'm feeling good. Now, Jesus never sinned. So, hey, I admit it. I can be moody. All right? I can do that. Ask my family what it must have been like to walk with Jesus. But, I mean, as they traveled, they were walking along. Don't you think that there was sometimes Jesus walking next to John? And I'm not trying to get extra biblical, but picture our Savior. Just throw him a little elbow. We do, I do that to my kids all the time because I love them. John was the one beloved by God, loved by Jesus. Don't you think he went, hey, <laughs> You're pretty cool. You're my child. And John was able to hug him. His hands handled the Messiah. This is what I proclaim to you. Jesus is God. And he was born in a manger, and it's who we celebrate and who we sing. But our hands handled the word of life. I saw it with my eyes. Jesus became man, and I'm telling you about it, and I'm writing this so that you'll have joy, that your joy may be complete, that you'll have fellowship with us, because our fellowship was with God. God is my friend through Jesus Christ. I'm no longer an enemy. That's what John is saying. So our first answer, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is God, eternal God, from the beginning, it's amazing. Never make Jesus less than God. What child is this also? In the second answer of many that we'll look at today, he's our Savior. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is our Savior. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly. Or quietly, excuse me. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You ever use the expression, those are my people? Anyone ever do that? So who are his people? Well, we just spent two weeks in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, answering that question, right? Through Christ, there's no dividing wall. Both Jew and Gentile are now united in Christ Jesus. This is awesome. He will save his people from their sins. But there's also something pretty amazing about this child who was born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. And I love that it says he will save his people from their sins. Now, I will spare you from this. But if I opened up today and said, today our sermon is on Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Let's go. I think we'd be, really? How are you going to pull that off without putting me to sleep? You know, genealogy is an interesting thing. About one year ago, I got an email. Actually, yeah, it was about a year ago. It was like December 30th or something. And uh, I got an email, and I was like, just to cut right to the chase, I'm your third cousin. Um, I'm like, whoa. And I have First Brook family history going back to like 1700s. Now, do you know a little bit about, about me? I know, knew very little past my, uh, really past my great-grandfather uh, on, the first book, on the first book name. I mean, nothing. I was always curious about it. My people. Who are my people? And she goes, if you don't mind, uh, I'll, I'll send it over to you. And by the way, Michael might like this. She goes, I saw your sermons on the website at Grace Bible Church. And so I wanted to send it to you uh, because I love Jesus too. I'm like, oh, this is great. And what a blessing. And we email now from time to time, but it's a sister in the Lord who's also a cousin. She sent it over. You don't need to get the boring family history. I think it's cool, but you guys, that would put you to sleep, right? Everyone loves their genealogy, but they don't want to hear anybody else's. Unless you got something really cool. But we find this out, and I'm like, oh, this is neat. Now I identify myself with Cornish miners. So I call Cornish miners my people. <laughs> They're my heritage. It's my family. It's my ancestry. Well, who were Christ's ancestors? We look at this genealogy, and we go, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, go down the list. And we all like Andrew Peterson's song. Uh, about if you haven't heard it, it's on the Behold the Lamb of God uh, CD or album, as I like to still call music. But that's a thing of the past. But when you look at Christ's ancestors, and uh, they were not exactly the Hall of Fame of Holiness. <laughs> they weren't even in the Hall of Fame of what's good and proper. It is not the pure blood of, blood of royalty. In fact, it's far from it. I was reading an article from Steve Mathewson on the Gospel Coalition website, and this is what he said. He said it better than I could plagiarize it, and I wouldn't want to do that. All it takes is a quick glance at Jesus' family tree to understand why we hurry past it or why Handel didn't put it in the Messiah. The names sit there like lifeless skeletons. But when you read the genealogy thoughtfully, some names almost leap off the page. Rehoboam, Abiah, Joram, Ahaz, Manasseh, 
Jehoiakim and his brothers. See, the truth is, Jesus came from a dysfunctional family line. Four women are mentioned and included in the genealogy. Five if you include Mary. Who were they? They don't mention Sarah, not Rebecca. Instead, we see Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. These four women all have some connection with sexual immorality. Tamar seduced her father-in-law. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites were descendants of Lot and his daughter. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Bathsheba was married to Uriah the Hittite. And I wanted to hit on this a little bit more of two weeks ago in the last two weeks, but even in the Old Testament, and we see it in Christ's genealogy, we see God expanding his people to include Canaanites, to include those outside of Israel. But yet, in the Gospels, we start to see even more. God's people were, be, were being expanded to include the Gentiles. He is our Savior. You know, it's interesting, one VBS, about four years ago, might be three, I was out front, and there was a mom, it was obviously a visitor, and we had given the little girl a Bible. And I love kids. She started reading. She started reading, and then the mom came up to me, and she goes, uh, you gave my kid a Bible, and I had to explain to her, and, and I'm getting a pit in my stomach, about Moabites and Lot and his daughters. Oh, and, you know, you ever have that instant prayer of wisdom? Lord, wisdom, please. I said, yeah, there's a lot of ugliness in scripture. And I encouraged, I said, why don't we go to John and have your daughter start in the book of John and you'll see the love of God and you'll see forgiveness of sins. I said, but I want to tell you why it's there. I said, it's there because man is sinful. Man has fallen, and man has always been fallen. Man needs a savior, and that's why it's there. Man is wicked, but Jesus destroys wickedness through the cross. So we see these things, and sometimes, I mean, I don't know about you, but I remember talking with Karen before. You read through the Old Testament, you read through the scriptures, and sometimes you go, I, I just feel, I don't feel good. This hurts my heart. I feel like I need to take a shower. It's because we're wicked. And we need a savior. And so in Christ's genealogy, we didn't even hit it all that hard. But look where our savior comes from. But why was it so important that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Because sin is transferred through Adam. And so we have a perfect, fully God, fully man, Savior. And he will save his people from their sins. His people, if you want to take it back to the genealogy, needed salvation from their sins, just like you and me. That child laid in a manger is our Savior. So what child is this? The third answer among many other proper answers, is this. Jesus Christ is the victor over death and sin. He is the victor over death and sin. By the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 is just an awesome passage of scripture speaking of Christ. Hebrews is an awesome book. Awesome, awesome book. Written to the Hebrews to sell, tell the Hebrews that they don't need to be Hebrews anymore. That Jesus has fulfilled the law. And so now, as we saw, we're one in Christ. We have the church. And God will one day bring many of his people 
to salvation, and we look forward to that day. But it's talking about how great Jesus is. That's what Hebrews is. How great is Jesus? And it says this in chapter uh, 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Powerful couple of verses, and I just want to break it down. So let's just kind of break this down. And look a little bit closer. First section, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Who is that? That's us. That's humans. You and me, we are flesh and blood. We are frail. We are human. We're foolish. We are weak and we are mortal. We will all die unless the Lord returns. But if he does not choose to come soon, prepare to die. Because we will. We are mortal. All of us. We are helpless and we are powerless. And the writer of Hebrews was very appropriate in calling us children. Now, what do you mean by children? Well, how many of you who have raised children, how much help do children need? A lot. I am withholding my tongue right now to not share a story about my own children. <laughs> but even sometimes, and not Kelsey, Kelsey's in good shape. But sometimes we're just like, what's going on with our kids? Do, do, do things work? What is happening here? Now, the truth of the matter is, my family says the same thing about me. All right, what's up with dad? Does it work? What? So, you know, we understand that. But we're children. We're helpless. We're we leave a child alone at two years old. How will they thrive by themselves? Absolutely not. And we will not thrive without God. And so we are children. We share in flesh and blood. We all need help. All of us are weak and wounded. But what's the second section? He himself likewise, likewise who? Like who? Like us, partook of the same things. Other versions would say he took on the same nature. Jesus, eternal God, eternal. Eternal doesn't mean just going forward. It means eternal past. I have a hard time with that, and we'll just stop with that. Those of you who understand eternity past, I love you. I'll never figure it out. My mind does not work in such ways. But Jesus Christ is eternal. And as we saw, the creator in Colossians chapter 1. The one to whom all things belong, infinite in power, our creator, our king, upholder of all things, what did Jesus do? He partook of the same things. Philippians chapter 2 says it this way. He emptied himself and humbled himself, yet never stopped being God, but became God-man. Fully God, fully man. He was fully God, yet by taking on human form, we could handle him. We could touch him. We could approach him. Veiled in glory. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration where for a few moments Jesus Christ decided to show his glory? They hit the deck. They could not gaze upon him. Fully man, yet without sin. God became man, mortal, frail, and he became a servant. Now, I'll, I don't know about you, when I wrote down the words frail, I actually had a hard time with that. Can I be honest with you. I don't like speaking of my God as frail. But yet, when he was fully God and fully man, that's what Christ did. He partook of the same things as you and I. And later in the passage, it says he felt. He himself has suffered. He himself was tempted. 
And now he's able to help us in our suffering and able to help us in our temptation. But when I wrote down frail, I'm like, my God's not frail. My God's big. My God's strong. But when he took on humanness, he felt pain. I ask you this. Was Jesus the picture of strength in the garden before he was to endure the cross? He begged the Father to take this cup of suffering away from him. But yet he endured for us, for you, and for me. So Jesus became man. He partook of the same things. And he did this for a reason. And what was the reason? That through death, through death, reason was that so that he would die for us. Jesus came to die. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap to sleeping? Came to die. This is sobering. This is the death of a perfect man. But the death of a spotless lamb was needed. And Jesus came to die as the perfect man. When Jesus was born and entered earth, he was placed immediately in death row. And he embraced this role and he took this role for you and for me. Jesus came to die. He came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to die. What child is this? Nails, spears will pierce him through. The cross he bore for me and for you. The child in the manger died on the cross made of wood that he created. Put there by you and for me. Put there by you and me for our sins. But what is the result? What is the result of this child coming to die? It's awesome. It's victory. It's salvation. So that we can be fearless. So that we can be bold. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We are no longer slaves. That he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. I'll end this with another question. What's the worst, because of Jesus coming, what is the worst thing that can happen to us? Think on that. What's the worst thing that can ever happen to a believer, to a child of God? We may suffer. We may suffer in this world. Is that a really a big worry for a believer? I'm not trying to be callous because I know, hey, sometimes suffering beats us down because we're weak. I am not trying to be ungracious, but what I'm trying to say is this. Because of Jesus, because of this child who came to die, we have nothing to fear. I've talked to people who have fear. I've had fear myself. And I ask this question. What's the worst that could happen? Are you going to die? Because most people, I would think the worst would be, yeah, I'm going to die. For a believer, there is no death. We'll have eternal life with Christ. By the way, for an unbeliever, you die what they call the second death, but you don't die either. You have eternity apart from Christ. You see, 
we are not mere mortals. I'm quoting C.S. Lewis again. You have never met just a man or just a person. Because we have a soul. And we are eternal. And it's an eternity with Christ or it's an eternity without Christ. But those in Christ have nothing to fear. In Jesus, we do not fear anything. We do not fear death. He conquered it. We're no longer slaves because we have been delivered. Jesus is our deliverer. So what child is this? He's Savior. He's Christ the King. He's the victor over death and sin. He's the creator. He's God made flesh. He's eternal. He is mighty. He is the word of God. He is our deliverer. He is the Messiah. And he is Jesus, friend of sinners. And all praise and glory to Jesus Christ alone. Amen. I hope that you're ready for Christmas to celebrate properly our wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your Son. Lord, we know that in the garden when Adam sinned, death entered. It was broken. But yet even then, you said, I have a plan. And it's going to step on the head of the snake and crush it. And you have done that through Jesus Christ. Who came. Who became man. Who took on humanness. Lived a perfect life. And he died for us. So that we no longer have to fear anything. Because we have Jesus Christ. The child who came to save us. Lord, help us tell others. Lord, help us in this season be bold in proclaiming the good news that we have a Savior, and He is Jesus Christ. It's in your great name we pray. Amen.